And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with CFA Institute, and today we're talking to Cindy Rose, Head of Responsible Capitalism, Lion Trust Asset Management. Cindy, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you, Matt. It's lovely to be here. What we're going to talk about today is maybe a little wonky for people in the in the investor world, but we met a couple years ago. It was right before the pandemic was starting, and we geeked out over materiality the issue of materiality. We talked about materiality for about an hour, hour and a half, Yeah. Uh, which which I, I hope a lot of people listening don't have those kinds of conversations about materiality, and they have more interesting lives than we do, maybe. That's but right. I thought it would be a great conversation to have because materiality is infused in you know everything ESG and sustainability, but it's not something we've really specifically talked about. And so I thought it would be great to have that conversation. You have a unique position in the materiality world because you know, you've helped put together a framework for where you are, where you work. Yep. That is one of the first that I've seen, you know, an asset manager, you know, taking the time to sit down and, and create a really robust framework around materiality. So I want to get to that. But first, sure. you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here. So I have spent quite a while working with a very big asset manager in Scotland called Aberdeen. And I started out there as an investment writer, got married and married a Brit, came to Scotland and needed a job and I can write. So I got a job as an investment writer. And over about 20 years at Aberdeen, led ESG or co-led ESG, depending on which time period we're talking about and really worked on developing that platform over multiple asset classes. I was part of the global equity team, and that was really invaluable in helping me and the whole ESG program come up with and grow up with the language of investing. And I, I will always just be so grateful for that experience because I, I sat with amazing people who taught me so much but also we could share an experience of really trying to enter ESG, not just into equities, but also across the fixed income space and alternatives and property. I left Aberdeen in 2019 and I went to Majetti Asset Management, which was a small boutique um, and had the opportunity to really build something unique for equity mainstream funds. And that was just a fantastic experience because we had the willingness, we had the software expertise, and we were able to design something that was that was quite special, to be quite honest, and really could evidence the work that the investment team with all of its different investment processes could take on and could evidence what they were doing 
for a mainstream product that showed how ESG was integrated into the thinking, which led to engagement, which led to an idea about conviction in a stock and a holding, and then which led to weighting in the portfolio. So you could draw a direct line across and, and tie all of those things together. And I don't want to be, as you term, too geeky about it, but I think that that's one of the real problems that we have really right now is in the investment world is that ESG, if we're going to talk about that, and I think we should probably define that before our podcast is over, is so nuanced right, right. that the market tends to think about it in, in very specific terms. And we can talk about that too. But after Majetti, so about four or five months ago, Majetti was acquired by Line Trust Asset Management. And it's been a real privilege to be head of responsible capitalism so far at, at, at Lion Trust. I've so much support, so much interest. Um, Lion Trust has a fantastic reputation in what we'll call the sustainability space. And this is a fantastic, <laughs> really, really just, just turn of events that, that will allow us to then create and expand what we started at Majetti and, and really bring that materiality to the fore. That's great. That's a great summary. And now, you know, we talked a little bit before we started, and now we're going into the, the, the quiz round of, uh, of the podcast. And you, you scared me by saying that you, you want me to define some, some terms. So yeah. I know I'm going to get this grossly wrong, but we'll see. So okay. you know, what are some, I think, you know, you've, you've tipped your hand, you're going to ask me to define things, but are there, you know, numbers, facts, definitions yeah. that we should talk about and, and trying to try to frame this conversation we're going to have? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard, I you can kind of give me a ballpark figure on this. Well, I'd like to see what your thought is on if you were to take all of the asset managers in the world, right, just all of them, mm -hmm. what percentage yeah. ballpark do you think can actually evidence, cold hard evidence, the integration of ESG factors, and I know we still need to define that, but just taking kind of a market view on what that is right. with their investment decision. And it, yeah, it, it, so it could be the use of screens, it could be any approach, but what percentage ballpark do you think can actually evidence that? Well, I'm going to try to weasel out of this question a little bit in that <laughs> okay. you said hard evidence, and I'm curious what that means. And don't say anything yet, because okay, there's... We, we could ask the question, how many, what percentage of funds say, just say in some way yeah, sure. that they're sustainable or there's ESG involved or responsible investment or whatever the words are, uh -huh. they just say it. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's a much higher number than the evidence one you were looking for. Is that, am I, am it I is. understanding it is. the question correctly? Yeah. And I guess it would be fair to say of people who say that they do it, how many can evidence it? That that would probably be a better way of framing the question. How many can evidence it? Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Yeah. That's what I thought, but I wanted to make sure I was defining but, it correctly before yeah. I get a wildly wrong answer to yeah. this question. I think it's got to be pretty low. I would say 18%. Okay. I my For what I hear, and I'm not the expert, but from okay. what I hear from the groups that are much more expert at understanding the global situation than I am, the ballpark is around 10 to 15%. Okay. So you weren't too far on. All right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. But that would include, if you think about how that includes 
So a lot of managers, uh, a lot of approaches will be screening, right? And so screening are a fairly direct way of being able to evidence, right? So if we take out the screening and we say people who are just looking, are strategies that are just looking at ESG, and, and of course that means lots of different things, then the number falls again. So I think it's a really difficult situation that we find ourselves in because we want to be able to evidence and, and show clients and show investors that they're getting what we say they're getting. Yeah, and that's a really important concept from a legal perspective and a regulatory perspective. It's about delivering what we say we're going to deliver. Yeah, and and anyone who's listened to this podcast or, or, or read what I've written, you know, that's something that we talk about all the time is that there's no real definition of ESG that everyone ag- agrees on. So whether you're sitting across from your broker or you're at a very high level at a pension fund hiring an asset manager, that needs to be the beginning conversation you have around responsible investment or ESG sustainability, what are you talking about, about what are we talking about here? This is how we want to define it. How do you define it? What does that mean? And then go from there because you know that number of, of all the ESG themed ETFs, funds in the world, only a very small percentage are actually doing the groundwork. Number doesn't surprise me, but it's evidence that investors really need to kick the tires on these things. Absolutely. Yeah, just so that they have confidence in what they're investing in. So let, let's, because we've just right, talked right. about definitions, let's turn just slightly, if we can, to definitions. And I think when we're talking about okay. what terms mean, I think we have to be careful to say there may not be a, a absolute right wrong here, but I think it would be interesting to explore what you perceive to be the definition of materiality. Well, I was kind of prepared for this because that's the title of the podcast today. <laughs> so, I mean, the way I've I've looked at it because, and maybe it's just, you know, coming up in the U.S. is that what's been codified by the SEC's definition and through the Supreme Court rulings over the years is materiality is basically any information that a reasonable investor would want to to have in doing their analysis on a company. And then you can get into what is reasonable investor and all that. But but that's basically the definition as I remember it. And I'm sure I don't have all the words exactly right, but that's basically it, is what a reasonable investor, what information a reasonable investor would want to make an informed decision on an investment. And so, you know, we get into, well, is, is this piece of ESG information uh, material or not? You know, I came up years, 20 or so years ago at an ESG rating firm, and we were collecting hundreds of pieces of data because we didn't know. We were just trying to figure out what worked and what was material. And now you fast forward to things like SASB, who's now part of the Value Reporting Foundation, where if it's an oil and gas company or it's a utility or it's a software company, they've worked to boil down, and you can agree or disagree with what they have if you're an analyst or investor, but they may have eight to 10 metrics that really drive value in that sector. And it's going to be different sector to sector, and there's going to be some overlap. But in general, we've gotten to the point where we have a pretty good idea in a lot of these spaces, what is material and it's not. And again, that isn't hard and fast. That's, you know, decades of work. SASB's come through and said, okay, this is what we think is. But but you may, if you're an informed investor or analyst, you may say, well, 
those eight that they say, I agree with six of them, but I don't agree with these two, and I'd really like to replace it with these two, that's fine. But that's much better than where we were, you know, 20 years ago, just saying, well, we're just collecting 700 data points and we're going to see what happens. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that SASB has been invaluable in making the next evolutionary step in trying to help people understand what could be important. One of the things that I think we get kind of mixed up with in terms of materiality is that, like beauty, materiality can sometimes be in the eye of the beholder, but other times it is very much what a reasonable person would think. Now, if I can go just a little bit off-piste and just talk about an analogy that sometimes when I'm speaking with clients I will use, it's an imperfect analogy, but I think it illustrates. And that is that both of my parents were teachers, and so they would have a classroom full of students of different ages. And when a student comes into a class, you have, basically as as a teacher, you have Um, a point to being there and you have to get child A, well, number one through number 26 or number 30 through a set of courses to the end of the year so that they can then go on and conquer the next step. Right. Now, sometimes you'll have students that come in and they're very gifted and they are excelling. And so for them, the priority or the materiality of the year is focused around just pushing them as hard and giving them as much of an opportunity as possible to fly and to grow. And other times you have students who come in and there might be issues. Yeah, it could be learning disabilities, it could be issues at home, it could be anything, right? And so as a teacher then you become cognizant perhaps of what's going on and and you want to help that student overcome or or deal with whatever's going on in the process of trying to get through your curriculum. And then sometimes you have students who don't want to be there, right? And so then you have to kind of deal with that. And so what I'm trying to illustrate is that materiality is very dynamic and is not the same. And even though you work within this kind of framework of we're all kind of moving in the same direction, it comes down to the student as to what their prioritized list of material issues, and I use that in kind of parentheses, material issues is. And I would equate that to working with companies, yeah? Because yes, we all want companies to evolve in the right way so that they are thinking not only about their financial status, but also about how they can bring and I'm going to use this term loosely, value to to customers and shareholders. But there are priorities for them that they have to deal with. And so in our development of a materiality assessment process, we've undertaken that. But it's within the investable time horizon, and it's looking at all things holistically so that we can then measure on a likelihood and impact basis what we think our order of engagement is, our prioritized list of issues is. So I I use that example because I just think that there's so much nuance in this. Now, when a client comes and they say, well, the most important thing to me is, well, then I'm I'm seeing the materiality assessment that they have done and that they're vocalizing. Now, it's really interesting. I was at a conference yesterday and somebody in the UK had done a survey and they had surveyed people on what they would like to see in I use this term loosely, ESG products. 
And so a large percentage of surveyees or surveyed people said they really wanted to see more ESG or sustainability products. But when they turned around and made the investment, they didn't necessarily invest that way. So we're not only are we seeing this kind of layering of different approaches or different points of view on materiality, we're seeing different approaches in terms of what people say they want and what they're actually doing. So it's a very convoluted yeah. picture, yeah? And so the best thing we can do, as we have already said, is to explain exactly what the approach is, exactly how we see and define the item that we're dealing with, and then evidence what we're doing, and then show how that impacts the investment decision. No, that's great. That... So let me ask you another definition. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Can we, can we go on to this? There's another definition that I think is really interesting, and that is net zero. What is your and definition of net zero? First of all, I'm going to steal your analogy okay. of from uh, children at school to okay. companies. Then you, when you're talking to a company, you, you have to make sure that you don't think they're the problem child at school, or maybe, or maybe they are. Absolutely. And I didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I was just, uh, just no, I was just yeah. joking around. Yeah, yeah. But um, net zero. What's my definition of net zero? Uh, I think in in some ways, and this is a little bit snarky, but it's a little bit honest. In some ways, it's a distraction. That's the first thing I kind of think of when I think of net zero. But the definition is, the hard and fast definition is net carbon emissions or net net greenhouse gas emissions. You know, you could separate it from carbon and greenhouse gas. But the way I look at it is net greenhouse gas emissions, a and it could be at a household level, at a company level, at a country level, at a global level, but let's just say globally. So it's a net greenhouse gas emissions globally we are emitting as a society in two thousand by 2050. You know, that's the date everybody talks about. And so if you're not at zero with your emissions... You have to have offsets that you know take that carbon dioxide or methane out of the atmosphere. So, for example, you know the oceans, the phytoplankton in the oceans absorb about half of the CO2 in any given year. So that's a natural sink of carbon we can depend on. And as our forests, you know, as are some other natural processes. But the problem is now that we're spewing much more CO2 and methane and uh, and nitrous dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The natural systems can handle. So 2050, net zero by 2050 is getting trying to get to that baseline where we're not putting any more bad stuff, greenhouse gases, in the atmosphere. It's netting out at zero. Now, the, the reason I say it's a distraction is because it's not immaterial. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing. We should have that goal. But I think too many people think of net zero 2050 as the end and that, oh, we're just going to do that and everything's fine. And there's a lot of problems with that in that there's a lot of not of net zero 2050 promises that are being made by people who aren't going to be around in 2050, whether it's that's 30 years away. So if someone's in their 60s or 70s and they're at a company and making that promise, it's a very easy promise to make when it's somebody else who will have to deliver on that promise. And there's a lot of net zero 2050 promises that are made with no plan behind them. It's just, you know, marketing, greenwashing. And the real problem is that once you, if you get to net zero 2050, you know, if, if all, you know, theoretically, if all greenhouse gas emissions were eliminated tomorrow, we'd still have a big problem 
of the legacy greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere and carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for decades, if not centuries. So you also have to develop a way to get that out of the atmosphere as well. So I say distraction because it's it's not the whole game. It's not the whole enchilada, if you will. And there's a lot of cheating and fudging around net zero 2050 promises. That's a very way too thorough definition. No, of no, I think that's answering really your excellent. question, but that's kind of I, I wanted to I wanted to help frame it for 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 listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I really appreciate that, and I'd like to kind of explain where some of the problems come within that definition because I think that that is the way most people see it. Now, one of the things that we're up against from the investment perspective is that when we go and talk with a company or we invest in a company, we need to engage that group. That group cannot on its own achieve net zero in the definition that you've provided. They can only only achieve carbon neutrality, which is what an entity can achieve by making sure that its emissions don't exceed, well, that its emissions, that it has net emissions, I guess is the way to say it. And so- Zero, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that the market has sort of played around with is this idea of net zero. And and so we, we use that term to mean carbon neutrality. And actually, those two things are slightly different. So when we talk with companies about achieving carbon neutrality, it is very difficult because they can only guesstimate or they can only see so far down the line. And you're exactly right that that causes all kinds of problems. And actually, I was reading a BP report the other day, I think in their annual report from this past year, they say that they estimate that the world's only going to achieve 20% of its carbon reductions that's needed for net zero by 2050. Now, is that true? I I think it's Mm -hmm. just one estimation. But when we're talking, that my I guess my point is is that when we're talking with companies, not only do we not have the the exact consistent terminology, we can't even formulate plans because people are, you know, kind of hedging and guessing. And the people who are going to be around in 2050 are probably not the people in some instances who are around today. So we have this baton passing yeah. and we're hoping that we can, as a as a race, achieve some things where we haven't really made those kind of achievements before and set those goals before as yeah. a as a race. So I, I think it's a really interesting problem and it fits into this category of definitions and and trying to communicate and uh, educate and achieve something that is a bit of a slippery slope. Okay. Any any more definitions you got for me? Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear what your definition of ESG is. <laughs> My answer is I, I don't really worry about it too much because it's so hard to define because naturally everyone's going to bring their own things to it and... You know, I've, I'm old enough and been around this world long enough to, to be, I was at, you know, the meetings that helped put together the PRI. I was one of, you know, hundreds of people. But in, back in that day, it was, you know, ESG is just a data set. It's just a way to organize data. That's all it really is. And it's just a way to make sure we were, and the, the ethos behind that was to, a way to make sure we're incorporating all these things that can be material into the investment process. Uh, to, to go back a little, you know, I, I'm a CFA charter holder. I got my charter back in 2003. And I joke that 
corporate governance didn't make its way into the curriculum until about 2004, 2005. And you think, you know, nowadays, if, you, if you're taking the CFA curriculum, you take for granted, or an MBA curriculum, or a finance curriculum at a university, or a lot of finance education, corporate governance will be in there. But 20 years ago, it wasn't. It was just starting to get in there. And the E and the S of ESG came in to the CFA curriculum, I think about 2009 or so, give or take a year. And it's going to be the same with MBA curriculums and finance curriculums. So culturally, as, as a business, finance hasn't been doing this for, for a long time. But it's, you know, for the past 10, 15 years, people have started to learn this. Oh, this is just part of, this is just part of analysis. And so ESG in the beginning was just a way to make sure this information is incorporated in the investment process. The way I like to think of it is, is and I think, I think this comes from the CFA curriculum, the mosaic theory of analysis. You know, you're building a mosaic with tiles to, to form a picture. And E and S and G may be some of those tiles in the mosaic. It may be some of the paragraphs in the story you're trying to tell. You know, and if and the story isn't complete or the mosaic isn't complete, if you leave that out. That's all I really think. That, that, that's the, how I define it, how I think about it. And I think, you know, finance is a business like other business and businesses, and we look for ways to oversimplify things. And if someone is going to buy a product that has ESG label or sustainability label, and they're going to pay five, 10 more basis points for it, if we just tilt a, an index a little bit away from oil and gas companies, and then look, we've done ESG, that's not really doing much. That's not really having an impact. But technically, it's, I just threw an ESG label on it. It's ESG, right? And not really. You know, so I just think of ESG purely as it's just a way to organize data. That, that's all it is. And we can't really promise things beyond that. And I've written and spoken about, you know, there's no, and I'm not the only one who says this, but there's no such thing as ESG investing because we can't agree on that. What I, what I would want from an ESG fund is going to be different than what you would want from an ESG fund. And we probably have a lot of things in common about what we would want, but we still have differences. And multiply that by billions of investors, and you know, it's just it's it's silly to try to have ESG investing. I think, and I think where we're headed is we're kind of at the peak ESG, and we've getting we're getting some blowback now that I think was always going to happen as natural. And I think over time, you're not going to go to a conference and have a special ESG breakout session, or not going to have special ESG conferences. It's just part of investing. It's you know you don't have a breakout session on value investing or growth investing. Well, sometimes you do, but it's not going to be the sexy trend it is now. It's just investing. It's just part of investing. It's just part of understanding that whole story or building that mosaic. It will lose its trendiness. And we talked, you mentioned a bit before, is like there'll be lawsuits over it and people will get in trouble for misusing it. And that's a natural, you know, evolution of anything. But so I, I would caution people to keep their definitions of it simple. But even then, to have that conversation at the beginning of, you know, beginning of that relationship, whatever it is, if it's an individual and their broker, or if it's a pension fund and their asset manager, or if it's civil society and policymakers, you know, that has to be part of the conversation of what is it we're talking about here. I think that's a fantastic response. There are a couple of things I'll note from what you've just said, if that's right. Yeah. The first thing is, is that in some ways we've talked about ESG, sustainability and impact almost interchangeably, mm -hmm. yeah, and that ESG is data and that ESG is now mainstream. So I, I take all of those points that you've said, so thank you very much. 
I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that the the nomenclature, the abbreviation of ESG, was was created in order to group what people considered to be non-financial issues and non-financial matters right. with regard to an investment. So I would I would say now that I strongly go against that, that I think that everything is financial when you're looking at an investment. And I think it's an unfortunate grouping of issues because I think they're not good bedfellows, to be quite honest. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that the market talks about ESG in basically one way, but it could also include two other ways. So on the whole, it has a point of view that ESG is somehow about behavior. So it's that good and bad. So it takes the values that come with what was socially responsible investing and it's brought them forward and retained them. Okay. Yeah. And so we still talk about good and bad. So it's a good supply chain or a bad supply chain, or it's a good accounting pra practice, or it's bad because it's about fraud, or it's a, a good cybersecurity approach, right. or it's bad because it, it, it lets data out and in and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the kind of central or middle approach is where some people will talk about ESG risk and opportunity. And they'll say it's really about understanding uh -huh. or mitigating risk when you make an investment. And that's also a very valid point. And then on the third kind of leg, we have ESG is meaning kind of interchangeably with, with sustainability, although more about impact. So because we've invested mm -hmm. in this company, it's brought this much electricity to an emerging market or it's cleaned, provided clean water for this. And then sometimes you try and measure that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's unfortunate that we have bucketed all of these different things, but yet the market talks about ESG primarily in the value sense, good and evil, but can, without yeah. due notice, change to something else. And so that's where we are yeah. stuck, is we're stuck between these, you know, kind of broad areas, these three broad areas. And, you know, it depends. You might come at it one way and I might come at it a different way, but we still use the same terminology. And literally that that's just going to be no end of difficulty. So the SEC, for example, is talking about, you know, materiality and it says, well, climate related information is material. And yet we have the problems in Texas right now where people are, are saying, well, we're not going to allow any ESG investing. Well, I presume, right. but haven't asked that that's about values-based ESG investing, where they assume, right. and again, I haven't asked, but I'm assuming that they're assuming that there's going to be some kind of negative screen, which rules out, as you were talking about, whatever they perceive to be, and I use this term loosely, bad, right? And so if yeah, we yeah. took the yeah. middle definition of risk and opportunity as a means of understanding what you're holding and as a means of issue management and factoring that into how we are convicted or see an investment, it would be a completely different discussion. So this is where we are in the middle of this terminology business. Yeah. and, and But I think, you know, like I said before, I think over time that will be sorted out uh, and it's just, it'll be analysis. And like, let's, and like there's a, I was, I was uh, asked, I was interviewed by a a Florida newspaper recently about the same issue. You know, there's a, there was a push at the Florida legislature against ESG funds and ESG investing, and it's it, it comes from a values assumption. 
And one of the points I raised is, look, look, if I'm a fiduciary, I am required to look at all material information. And you can't, you, I mean, this isn't any kind of values, you know, answer, but you can't tell me. I can't include material information in my analysis because then I'm not doing my fiduciary duty. That's right. So I think it's a, and there's an election coming up in the U.S. in two months. So Let's see how hot this topic is in February. I don't think it will be very hot in February. You know, I think it's it's, I think it's one of it's an issue that that animates some people about value versus values conversation. But I think in the long term, it will just be analysis. It's like, hey, did you look at the you know the corporate governance structure of this company? It's a little it's a little strange. Can you take a look at that? Is there a, an opportunity or a red flag there? That's just that's just part of analysis. You know. A coal-fired power plant, you know, a, a, a utility that's mostly coal, you know, it's not only a CO2 issue with coal-fired power plants, but they're more expensive than wind and solar if those are available in that market. So those are just physics questions that you have to answer. And someone can take them as a values argument, but as an investor and analyst, as long as you have an argument to back up your decision, you know, you're, you're just, I think you're fine. You're just, Absolutely. you're just doing your fiduciary duty. You're just doing analysis. And I think over time, that's kind of things where we'll, where things will land. But yes, it's a bit fraught as it is now. Yeah. It is fraught. And I, I think just to sort of explore this a little bit further, I think it will remain fraught until we have some kind of oversight on ESG third party research provider data. Because right now we've got scores that are uh -huh. all place, and a lot of it is, you know, the providers say, well, it's about material issues. Well, you know, we can d debate that as long as it's a box approach to certain things. It, it, it is up for question. But let me ask you one other quick question, and that is we are entering or we are in a very interesting time in history right now. And we have several kind of macro things that are going on. And, you know, one of those is the events with Russia. And that's implication across Europe. And also, you know, the impact it's having on relations with the U.S. And then internally in the U.S., we have certain things that are going on politically. And people are probably more divided now. And... um less likely perhaps to um, be amenable to seeing another point of view. Um, and also this idea that it, it, if I have rights, it's so important that I keep them. But not only that, but it, it, it doesn't really matter how it Im impacts somebody else, right? And I think that's a, those two things, plus you know some, some other world events that are going on, are all really interesting in the concept of However, we look at ESG, whether that's from a values perspective, a risk and opportunity perspective, or an impact perspective. And all of course, this is in within the okay. scenario of global warming. Yeah. So how do you think that, you know, I get questioned all the time by clients about, do I think that ESG, and, and using that term very loosely, is going to die a death because we have other global priorities that are going on? Right, we may we may see civil war break out in different parts of the world. We may see international war break out in different parts of the world. And all by the by, everything's getting hotter. Yeah. So, 
within that context of volatility, how do you see this evolving? How do I see ESG evolving or, or can I solve all the world's problems? No, 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 not the world's problems, <laughs> but how do you ESG? Yeah, because I think a lot of people think ESG is about solving the world's problems. Yeah, no. Maybe I should start with that. Do you think that's what it's about? Yeah. No, it's not. It never was. No, and, I don't think so. And it never promised that. Yeah. It never promised that, but we all we all want that. So if if I think it's human nature, you know, and I think that's why, you know, funds can, you know, firms can charge 10 basis points more, 50 basis points more, or whatever for an ESG or sustainability fund, because people want to believe that I'm going to solve things by making this very passive choice. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's yeah. not going to work that way. Yeah. And I've had this, this kind of conversation with a lot of people, an analogy I use, just let's see if my analogy is better than your analogy from, from kids. I like yours okay. better, but I've used this one before. Okay. Is think back to the year 2000, how many tech funds were there? Or 1999, I guess, before the, the bubble popped. And then fast forward to 2005, how many tech funds, okay. just pure tech funds, were there? A lot lower yeah. number in 2005. People still invested in technology. Yeah. People are, are still, were still in 2005, are still invested in technology, still specialize in analysis around technology. If you got it right in 2000 invested in the right companies, you're very happy with what, you know the choices you've made. And I think we're at a similar moment with ESG. You know, take a snapshot of you know last year, how many ESG sustainable impact funds? Add them all together. How many were there? I don't I don't know the answer, but but the, you know, and then compare that to 2025. It's going to be a monumentally lower number. But the analysis around ESG information will be better by then. We'll have more metrics. ICC is doing stuff. IFRS is doing stuff. That's another generation of people who will have come through trainings, including ESG information in the investment process. And that ESG may die away as a way to frame things. And like I said, I don't think we're going to be having as many breakout sessions as conferences on ESG. I think we probably will for climate and maybe natural capital issues, but that's a different story. But it's still going to be there. I think it'll just, its like I said, it's just going to be, become part of analysis. But I think you're right in that things like the war in Ukraine, you know, I saw a lot of stories back in February when that happens, people gloating, oh, ESG doesn't matter anymore because it's not performing well because of, you know, the, the rise in oil. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's a more complicated issue than that. But I think those kind of factors will, you know, as people realize ESG is an magic bullet and, you know, people who did say or presume to say that ESG is going to promise to solve these problems, people will realize, well, that's not going to happen. And, you know, those kind of changes will happen through policy, you know, policy at national level, the way our lives change will be, and this is a whole different conversation about green revolution. And there's a pr projection of like half the cars on the road will be EVs electric vehicles by 2035, great, that's less carbon dioxide, but all those cars have a lot of rare earth elements and materials you have to put into them. And some of those, you know, we just don't have the capacity to get to where we need to be to hit that number by 2035. And that's, and those are their own problems. And, you know, and societies and countries are starting to realize, oh, we have to recycle these solar panels. We have to recycle these wind turbines. Oh, we didn't think about that. And so, you know, all those things are going to be, 
it's it's not there's no magic that's going to happen a lot of us is going to take hard work and a lot of changes to the way we do things and the way we live i totally agree and when i'm asked that question i say i don't think that the idea about understanding what you hold and about understanding what risks and opportunities the investments face will ever change i think people will always want to know that and I also think we need to think seriously about our sphere of influence. And we reported when we were at Majetti, and certainly we'll report this way here at Lion Trust, is that, you know, we we can't simply change the world like you're talking about. We can make small steps and do our part to do that. But our greatest influence might be much closer to home. It might be with our clients and it might be with consultants and it might be with our retail investors. And yes, it might be with our investments as well, but sometimes just urging them to report in a way that is easier to understand is a great accomplishment, mm-hmm. right? Not, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to getting companies to rethink their transition plans and make them more resilient. I, I totally believe in that, but I'm saying sometimes our, our, the positive impacts that we have on people come at much smaller doses. And actually added together, that that actually makes up a big tally. So I try and when I bring people on uh, on our team and when I speak at conferences, I encourage people to feel good about the small things that happen. Yeah, and, and really making a difference doesn't have to be about getting a country to sign up to something. It can be just simply about having a discussion like this in which somebody thinks, oh, well, I didn't think about it like that before or... Yeah, th- th- this really is important, or this is a good approach, or yeah, it's really important to be transparent and be able to be evidence based. So, anyway. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed, agreed. All right, well, now I want to get to the uh, materiality black box you've built at uh, First Majetti and now Lions Trust. Don't have to give any any trade secrets, but you know, when when we first had that conversation, I was I was intrigued because I hadn't seen or heard of something like that before. And I think a lot of asset managers and investors are just starting to think of, of this kind of stuff that you've been doing for years now. So, you know, just give us a little insight into how that, how that process started and, and what, it, what it entails that you can share with us. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll tell you about kind of what we've done with the Majetti Investment Team, which is now part of um, the Lion Trust group. It's called the Global Fundamental Team. And that's where most of our experience has been, but we would like to use some of these experiences with the other parts of of Lion Trust. So the team at the time when I joined really wanted to have an approach where lots of different investors with lots of different investment processes could unify behind an approach for looking at, for lack of a better term, ESG, and for being able to say to clients and consultants, yes, we, we do this, and being able to show them the evidence. And so one of the things I had learned over quite a number of years of sitting with investment teams is that you really have to be able to show the team the value in doing it because investment managers are busy. You know, they're busy people and they've got lots of things to do and they've got lots of decisions to make. And the decisions that they make, they come with a lot, a lot of emotional attachment sometimes and also it, it's a high pressure it can be a high pressured environment so what we did was we talked with the team and said look what we think we would like to do is everybody has a concept in their own mind 
about what's important, right? And so when we talked with the team, we said, if you could give me in your head a list of things that you think are important for any one holding, then what we could do is we could start to discern which of those might hit the top of the list. And we also worked alongside some brilliance, a, a fantastic person that we have internally. Uh, she's a genius at, at creating systems and she has very special gifts, I think, much, much very unusual to see in both the IT and the investment world. And she helped us construct not only a platform, but some, let's call them apps for lack of a better term, that allowed managers to go in and really think through some of the issues that each company is facing and be able to prioritize them according to what they thought. Now, in order to make sure that the system was really robust, I helped. So I would be able to say, I would do a deep dive um, on a company, not from an EST perspective, but from a materiality perspective. And then I would basically challenge the investment manager and say, okay, have you thought about this or, or that? Yeah. And then it would be up to the investment manager who owns that note and who owns that due diligence to be able to say, no, I think, I think right. th this is the list. Then we mapped it, right? Yeah. And in our software, this were again, where our IT or software person was so critical was that she was able to create a very easy way for people to go in and map things, right? So now we have matrices on all of our holdings um, and it's an, excellent mm -hmm. way of being able to either talk to clients, talk to consultants, or talk to the companies themselves, because uh, literally it's on our systems and our systems are on our laptops. So if I go in to talk to a company, I just literally turn my laptop around and say, here's how we see you, company X. And they can say, oh, that's cool. really interesting. And then I can, it's sort of like then doing a menu at McDonald's. I can say, I ordered this, these things, and they can say, did you order these things? And I can confirm yes, or I can say, oh, actually, no, I meant this. And so when I turn that laptop around to mm -hmm. talk to a company, I can say, these are the things, what do you think about that? And do you think that there are other things that we've missed or whatever? And so it's not to say that they decide, but it's to say that we then get feedback. And I'll tell you that fast forwards a conversation with a company by light years. Right, because I'm not saying simply, yeah, yeah, hey, well, so. what about yeah. your balance sheet items that appeared, you know, this quarter? Or I'm not just asking them kind of very specific things. I'm saying, here's it in context. And what do you think about this? So we did that. And then the key issues link, they lead, sorry, our conversations with companies so that there's a connectivity. And um, it doesn't mean we can't talk about other things with companies as well, but those key issues lead. And then we have scores that allow us to then say, this is how convicted I am. Yeah. And that conviction then yeah. reflects our weighting in the portfolio. And so if you say, well, how did the supply chain issue, which might be number two for this company, how did that impact the conviction level? All I have to do is I have to track it through the whole system. And I can say it made a difference of this score and therefore it, or the weighting's gone up or down. The main thing I take away from that, and there's a lot, and I'd, I'd love to see the actual, I'd love to actually see your laptop someday. But the main thing I take from that is you've got to do this process if you're an investor. Because yes, you can just use SASB off the shelf or 
you know, you can pay Lions Trust a trillion dollars. I'm sure Lions Trust would like that, you know, to use their process or whatever, right? You know, you can buy an off-the-shelf thing that looks at materiality, but you have the, the, the what I see, the value that comes through it is you have to have that, you know, intellectual debate internally with your team, you know, whether it's five people or 500 people, so you understand how the how we got to where we are and the decision and what's behind those decisions. And if you're just taking a number from SASB or MSCI or something, you're not doing that work to understand what's behind it. You'll have something, you know, you'll know, yes, carbon dioxide is material for oil and gas companies, but to go through that, that's hard work, to go through that hard work internally for an asset manager is, is so important because it's going to help you in engaging with that company. You can't just say, well, the score is five. Well, where'd the score come from? I don't know. It just, you know, Sesby said it was five. You know, you've got to, it helps in engagement. It helps with a conviction of understanding why you made the decision, defending, and, and having that process where you challenge it internally. Okay, well, what's behind this? You know, your score is, is high for this. I don't see it that way. Explain it to me. I think that is the main thing I take away in that whatever your materiality process ends up being, whether you're a company with five people or 500 people, you have to go through that process to get it right. And, it, and, and a company that's the same size as you guys, you know, can come up with vastly different materiality thresholds and they're not wrong. They're just what they're focusing on. And, that, and that's, and that's what makes a market, but not to include that process is you're not doing enough due diligence in, in my mind. You're exactly right. So ownership is everything and, and being accountable for what you decide, yeah. everything. So two things really quickly. One is, is that this whole process works really well for bottom-up quality growth. Um, it can also work for other processes as well. As soon as you take a top-down quant model, there are some things that have to change about it. So that's um, good to know. And also ah. we get queried a lot about why aren't we asking the same question of every company? Because if you have such a free flow of ideas, then how are you guaranteed that you're going to have E, S, or G issues in your top issues, your, your prioritized issues for companies? And the way I respond is, is yeah. that if you dig deep enough on any issue, you're going to find an E or an S or a G root. It's just true. If you can talk about cash flow, you can talk about um, cash allocation, you can talk about dividends, you can talk about whatever, but at the, at the root, there will be some E, S, or G element. Now, some people will say, well, that's a cop-out. Um, I think it's a gift because if you then go in through and categorize all of your issues, which takes even more work, um, then you can you can quantify and you can categorize things in pie chart form. And we did that on the Lion Trust report for 2021. So that's on our website. And you can see the connectivity between key issues which yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Categorized by by funds and then the the engagements that we've done, and then you can see the conviction scores related to their to their weights of the holdings in the portfolio. So, it's you know, it works well. It is a lot of detail, and you know, it, it isn't for everybody because some people just don't want to take the time. Yeah, understood. Well, before we get to giving homework to to our listeners, there's one question I want to ask you about. You know, we've talked about the the intense work you and your team have done, and we've talked about kind of the state of ESG and sustainability. But the kind of the last question I want to ask is, you know, how how is policy and regulation adequately or inadequately currently incorporating materiality into what they're doing? 
and you can be as specific or as broad as you want to be. Where does it need to go? Okay, so I was at a conference yesterday, and this was the topic. And there were a lot of really good things said. And I think on the whole, we have the legislation in Europe with the EU taxonomy and SFDR, which is trying very hard to talk about having funds increase their disclosure so that investors will know what it is they're getting. And from that, I totally applaud them. I think it's very difficult to get everything mm-hmm. right the first time around. And so because we're still in the throes right. of trying to implement that and have investors then take that information and do something with it, we can't report back yet to see what the effectiveness is. Yeah. So it'll be interesting yeah. over the next couple of years just to see what information investors do use and how they use it. In the UK, the FCA's Sustainable Disclosure Regulation is in consultation. It will look a little mm-hmm. bit at the European legislation that's come out, and it will have its own twist. We're talking more about labeling funds as certain categories. And so that, again, will be another take on is the disclosure appropriate and in the way that investors need, right? So my my hope is that not only are we going to label funds, but we're going to talk about process and we're going to link process to investment decision. And I'm just, we're waiting to see exactly how the regulation looks at that. And then, of course, in the, in the U.S., the SEC is, is saying that it would be um, really helpful and requiring companies to disclose on, on climate-related information because they think that that is being material. And I think it is material if you think about the world, but in terms of the actual listing, listed companies themselves, it will have a different degree of materiality between companies. So how Agreed. then does that fit yeah, in yeah. your reporting? So I think we just want to see from the beginning to the end how things are connected. And if that is achieved through legislation that's coming out, that's great. If not, then we'll look to the future to hope that that is achieved. Okay. So we'll, we'll check back in a couple of years to see how yeah, we, see, see where we are. Yeah. All right. Well, I uh, we end every th- we end every episode where uh, we put you on the bad side of our listeners because you give them homework. Uh, what should what should people be reading, listening to, watching to you know better understand you? We've talked for I don't know forty five minutes to an hour on this topic, but but is materiality specifically or anything else we've talked about more generally? What are some things you think people should be uh, jumping into? Yeah, I I think it's a great question. So people are busy. They have families. They might have small children. They might be working several jobs or working one job that's taking a lot of time. So if they're investing, I would strongly recommend that people know as much about the fund that you're investing in as possible. Is it doing what you want it to do? And is it achieving what you want it to achieve? So however you find that out, whether it's through the fund literature or talking to you know, a salesperson or whatever, I would do that because that's, you know, your time and your money are where, basically where your heart is. So is it doing what you want it to do? Outside of that, I right. think we would, I would just really keep up with, if you have time, I would keep up with kind of what's going on in terms of the way people are thinking about not just investing and not just about carbon and, and you know, green energy and things like that, but how are how are things developing politically simply because that's the framework that your fund is going to be operating in 
And it always comes back to that is what's going on in the world is actually going to impact me and you as an investor. So if you're kind of up with at least a little bit what's going on, then it's amazing how little things can influence your holdings. Inflation, the lack or or huge supply of green energy, people for supply yep. chains, and you know all of these. If you think about how many companies that you're invested in that have a global supply chain, it's probably almost all of them. And so all the factors, then it's like a ripple effect. So I would just... I know it sounds a little bit coy, but I, I would keep up with just understanding the fund and then understanding and thinking on the wider basis and thinking about things that could impact what you've invested in. No, that's a great answer. You're the first one, I think we've had about 40 podcasts, you're the first one who's told people to read the prospectus. It's true. I mean, it's the, it's the most immediate thing that you've <laughs> Yeah. Read the prospectus, but when you read the prospectus, understand that it's also a marketing document and you probably have more work to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's really helpful if you can talk to somebody. And, and what what I like to do is talk to the fund manager. Sometimes that's not possible. But um, it really helps you get an understanding of how they think. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, Cindy, I won't take up any more of your time. Thanks. It's been great. And hopefully, now that COVID's relatively over, we'll, we'll be geeking out at a conference at some point in the future again. Yes, I hope. Thanks so much. Uh, really, really a pleasure to be here. No problem. It's a pleasure to have you. Take care. This communication is issued by Line Trust Asset Management. This communication should not be construed as advice for investments in any product or security mentioned, an offer to buy or sell unit shares of securities mentioned, or a solicitation to purchase securities in any company or investment product. It contains information and analysis that is believed to be accurate at the time of publication, but is subject to change without notice. Whilst care has been taken in compiling the content of the communication, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made by Lion Trust as to its accuracy or completeness, including for external sources, which may have been used, which have not been verified. Always research your own investments, and if you are not a professional investor, please consult a regulated financial advisor regarding the suitability of such an investment for you and your personal circumstances.